0: Our guest today on the podcast is Stu Bell. Stu retired from the Navy JAG Corps as a captain in 2014 after a very distinguished career in which he specialized in international operational law. After leaving the Navy, Stu served as counsel for two years with Military Sealift Command Central in Bahrain before becoming the command counsel at U.S. Naval Ship Repair Facility in Yokosuka, Japan. Stu now serves as the area counsel for Military Sealift Command Pacific in San Diego, California. Stu, thank you for coming on to the podcast to share your experience and offer your thoughts about career progression from the military to the civilian sector.
1: Hey, thank you, Tom. It's real good to talk to you, and I sure appreciate it, listening to the other people that you have interviewed, most of whom are friends and colleagues. So this is a great effort that you're doing and glad to contribute. Stu, as I
0: reviewed your LinkedIn profile preparation for our conversation, two thoughts immediately came to mind. First, it's hard to believe that you've been out of the Navy almost eight years already. And second is that although you left the Navy, it appears that no one has told you you no longer have to move around every two to three years. Since you've left, you have gone from Washington, D.C., to Manama, Bahrain, to Yokosuka, to Japan, and now San Diego, California.
1: What is up with that? Well, you know, it's interesting that you say that because when we got to San Diego, In summer of 2019, this was the first time, I think, in my career that I can't be forced to move in general, right? I mean, the Navy can always reassign this position, but in general, I'm not required to move anymore. Of course, while in uniform, you had to be worldwide assignable, right? But the OGC and the government has a policy that there's a five-year limit overseas. So the reason I came back in 2019 was because I had been overseas for five years with OGC. And due to the OD policy, I needed to come back to Kona. So that's why you saw those couple of moves. And now we're in San Diego and the next move will be purely voluntary.
0: So Stu, let's go back to your last few years in uniform. When did you first start contemplating retirement?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. You know, I actually went back and just sort of looked at emails just to sort of refresh my memory. I saw an email that I had sent to Admiral Walsh a four-star that I worked for at Pack Fleet, who was sort of a mentor. I retired in summer of 2014. I saw an email to him towards the end of 2013, where I told him I was making the decision to retire. And that decision had been made. The timing would depend on the job. So that was at about the 24-year mark where I made the decision. And I think it was just sort of a decision based on trying to balance the needs of my family and I had three kids that were younger, and I knew that I was going to want to spend some more time with them as they entered into high school and things. That's what I think prompted me to start thinking about retiring. I think I had thought about it a couple of years before that. So I'm, Tom, I'm thinking that this probably occurred at least two or three years, serious thought prior to to actually retiring, thinking about, okay, what's Act Two going to look like? And how do I start preparing for that. When you started looking at Act Two,
0: what did you think that might look like? Specifically, were you looking at just government
1: work or other work as well? Yeah, so I did the ruling course. and I don't know if you've done that. And that helped me sort of focus on what do I want to do. And so initially, I was thinking maybe working for like an NGO using my international law experience at some non-governmental organization overseas. I really enjoyed being overseas and spent a good time of my career overseas. So I, I knew that was attractive. So I looked at that. I thought about the UN. I looked at the UN website and see what positions could I apply for within the United Nations. And that was sort of as a result of the ruling. And then The owner of the Ruland program, Admiral John Ruland, happened to be the father of a neighbor of mine, so I got to spend quite a bit of time talking with him just personally, As I was really wanting to focus on Japan and Asia, and he really encouraged me to say, hey, Stu, you've got to be worldwide assignable, even when you transition. Don't try to pigeonhole a particular area that's really going to limit you, limit your opportunities. So I try to be worldwide assignable. And of course, that's why I ended up in Bahrain, probably, as my first post-military duty station or assignment with OGC.
0: Going to that assignment, in your opinion, or what, to your knowledge, was the things in your record, the things in your resume that resulted in you getting the job?
1: Yeah, well, that's a great question, Tom. And, you know, sometimes life's about timing, right? At that time, I was the director of international law at Code 10. And MSC was having a challenge in CENT with time charters, U.S. flag time charters being granted essentially diplomatic clearance and being recognized as a sovereign immune vessel. So I had actually started advising and trying to help MSC on how to go after that in MSC CENT. And I did that in my chair at Code 10, just offering to, we could write papers or do whatever, engage with Fifth Fleet out there as they helped develop sort of the legal basis for why we asserted sovereign immunity for certain types of vessels. And then the MSC sent position open. So it was a very good timing, right? So I was familiar with the issue. So when they advertised the position, I sort of knew that some of the questions they would be asking in the interview, I was aware of some of the challenges they were facing out there. The other thing was that I had worked with MSC over the years in my position at PAC Fleet and PACOM. And so I knew that organization very well. I knew I liked the organization and thought that particularly as an, as an international law lawyer, that my skill sets fit nicely with some of the requirements they had for their overseas area council in particular.
0: So I assume that when you applied, the people on the other end were familiar with you as well, which helped.
1: They were, right. The operational council there, the Maritime Council, guy named Bill Stores, like I say, I had worked with a long time because MSC was part of the DGAR-Paul Mill talks we would hold with the UK each year. And MSC was part of those talks. So I got to know Bill Stores, And then Gary Ressing was the council at the time. And I'd worked with Gary because of these sovereign immunity issues while I was at Code 10. So you're right. So when I applied there, they were aware of who I was and some of the work that I'd done.
0: Back in the day, you didn't hear of many Navy JAGs going to OGC after they get out. But that's really not the case anymore, is it?
1: No, that's true. I mean, I think, you know, there are certain jobs that you're more competitive than others. As you know, you're trying to match your skill sets. When you look within OGC, there are jobs that are heavily acquisition based. We may not be as competitive for those, but you can develop it. For example, I have a friend who initially got in because of his international law experience, but developed acquisition skills as an OGC and was able to compete for jobs You know, once he got into OGC because he developed those skills. But when you look at OGC, not just OGC, but also DOD, general counsel's office has some international law jobs, operational law jobs. When I was actually in the Pentagon at Code 10 before I got hired by MSC, I applied for an Air Force position and felt very good about the interview, really thought I'd knocked it out of the park and thought I would be hired. And at the last minute, an 06 retiring Air Force JAG applied for it and got the position. And that made sense. I didn't feel bad about that. He probably had more understanding of their organization and it's just the way it was. But I think we are competitive for not just Navy OGC, but other services, and other agencies who deal in international law. I mean, I even thought of the CIA working in some of their portfolios. So we're very competitive, our skill sets in sort of various agencies within the government, I think. Other than
0: your international operational law experience, what other skill sets have you found that you needed to dust off in your three civilian assignments so far?
1: Or learn? Our ability on investigations is important, right? So doing investigations is something that you can apply that's a good skill set. Ethics, clear is one. And as you look at my career from my 25 years in active duty, 17 of those was on a flagstaff. So I did a lot of ethics. And so that was an area that I felt very comfortable in. Fiscal law, I always tried to develop that fiscal law background and experience. And when I was at the COCOM level, particularly I dealt a lot with fiscal law, so that was something that was marketable to OGC. So fiscal law, the ethics, investigations, obviously the international law, and then I think just the leadership piece. Even since I've been within OGC, they still look back at my military experience and give me credit for the leadership piece that I was able to do for the seven or eight years as a Navy captain.
0: So let's talk about that leadership piece, because from my own perspective, you don't necessarily appreciate that as you're sitting on this side of the fence, because everyone seems to have a type A personality. If you don't have the type A personality, you're usually not around at this 25, 30 year mark. We have people that see a job and do it because it needs to get done. We just assume that everybody is that way. And I've heard more than one person say, hey, it's the leadership on the outside that we really bring to the table.
1: So how so? They appreciate maturity, that you've excelled in maybe some difficult positions, that you've managed a group of people and have been successful in that. Some of the management requirements are different, but essentially, they're the same, right? I mean, you're required to write performance reviews. You're required to focus and correct deficiencies if they're there. You're expected to get and develop them professionally. That's one of your requirements, right? So you do that, and then you try to get the most out of your team so that you have a productive team. Those kind of themes, uh, you know, translate from active duty to being a GS government civilian. Have you ventured much
0: into the contracting acquisition side now, or is that still something that you able to keep an arm's length? I am not an
1: expert in that at all. I did apply for a pretty senior position. When I was coming back from Japan, I was applying for various positions. I feel very fortunate that MSC Pacific opened up. But while I was in that process, I did compete for some acquisition positions, leadership positions. And I think the reason I progressed in those interviews was more based on my leadership than my acquisition skills. But it's a good area to practice. And it's one that JAGS would do well in. Again, it's, it would be hard to come out as a 06 and go to a GS-15 position in acquisitions if you haven't done it, but it's something that you could develop. And I did do some at SRF because we were doing acquisitions, but we didn't have the warrant there. The warrant was at Fisk. And so I didn't have to give actual advice on the bottom line contract, but I was advising on it, the client there at SRF.
0: Have you seen a fair amount of opportunities for overseas postings for people coming out of
1: the service? Yeah, I think that's one where, as I was describing myself early on, those were the some of the things I was highlighting was my international law experience and my overseas experience. And I think that's something that if you have it, it makes you marketable. So at JAG, probably one of the positions, and I think you and I have talked about this in the past, Tom, for like a scenic position, right? If you wanted to apply as a region council overseas, whether that's Japan or Bahrain or Naples, you're competitive for that. Now, that job may require you to develop some civilian personnel law experience, and there may be a little bit of acquisition, but really the things that you know as an SJA and as Navy JAG, a lot of that will translate. A OGC, someone who's done it for 20 or 30 years, may be more competitive for you on the skill sets, but maybe you bring that overseas experience, and that's the thing that tips the scale in your favor. So I, I do think it's something that's helpful, shows that you can adjust thrive in that environment.
0: When you came out and were applying for the job, were you able to convey adequately your ability to learn new areas of the law? Because you've spent a JAG Corps career going from one specialty to another or one job to another that you really didn't have the expertise in, but people had confidence in you to say, Stu Belt is the guy that can do this. And now, you know, I've heard someone say, you can learn any law. It's the ability to think through it that's important. So how did you convey that when you were coming out?:
1: Well, I think for you know the job I was applying for, one of the primary areas they were looking at was really this international law. And so I was fortunate in that my skill set matched very nicely yeah. with the requirements that they had. But I think they also appreciated my jag time, and I think they gave me credit for that and for some of the, you know, the challenges and leadership that they knew I had developed in that position. So, yeah, I think you can sell yourself in that way to some degree. Hey, I may not know everything about that, but I have been flexible in my career and I've learned things. I think, you know, when they act, when, when the position description comes out, you've got to be able to match some of the areas they're looking for, right? And then they may, you know, they may be willing to give you more credit uh, for one of those areas with the understanding that you'll develop in the other areas as, as you're in the position. I, I don't think that's an unreasonable hiring strategy.
0: So, Stu, one of the things you hear from people is, hey, look, government service works great, but it doesn't pay that well. And I stopped there because I noticed that there's been a substantial increase in pay the last few years, that they've kind of caught up a
1: little bit on the pay scale. But what are the other benefits of continued government service? Well, you know, one thing when you go overseas, I will say, I don't think I ever felt richer in my life than when I was in Bahrain. <laughs> I came in as a GS-15. You can negotiate your steps, by the way, so you don't have to come in as a step one. You know, so I was able to negotiate some steps. There's a federal code that you cite for that. They call it superior qualifications criteria. So you say, hey, I think I've got some superior qualifications here Positions I've had. And so you can come in a little bit higher step. So that was important. And then overseas, you know, you get your housing paid for. In Bahrain, there was essentially danger pay. They don't call it that, but danger pay. And then you work on Sunday. So you got Sunday premium pay. I felt that I was remunerated very well in Bahrain. And really the same thing in Japan because I got the overseas housing allowance, right? That was really important. But no, I think the pay is competitive, particularly when, as an 06, you know, you would. Generally, be hired in as a GS-15 or a 14. And if you get the right step and then you have your retirement pay, I think you're gonna definitely have more disposable income than when you're on active duty. And that's really sort of where I want it to be, right? They also match your, you know, for your TSP, you start getting matched on that. So up to 5%, right? So you, if you invest 5%, they match 5%. So you're essentially able to do 10% into your TSP at a pretty low cost to you.
0: Were you able to negotiate increased leave per pay period coming in?
1: Yep, and that's another important one. And that one, the timing is, I guess, on both of them. But that the um, the annual leave accrual, you have to do that before you get the final job offer. So you need to to talk about that early in the process, not at the interview phase. After you select it, you would then say, "Hey, by the way, I want to go ahead and submit for the annual leave accrual." and MSC was not that familiar with that. If you're hired within the Pentagon, those agencies tend to be very familiar with it. And I think there's a lot of jags that come in with the maximum 15 years that you need to get the 8 hours per pay period. I got some credit for particularly my time at Fleet and Code 10. So I got a few years, but again, there were some prior jags I've talked to who got essentially their entire career credited But that's something that you definitely want to look at. So those are the two things I did want to mention, the annual leave accrual, and then the step level that you come in. You want to look at that, and that can help you on your pay and leave.
0: What was the length of time it took from the time you applied until you had the final job offer, or there was acceptance of the final job offer?
1: Yeah, mine was pretty smooth. Now, of course, you've got the six-month delay potential, right? That was not in place. I think the job came open in, I think it was advertised like in December or January. I applied for it, notified the deputy JAG at the time, Jim Crawford, Admiral Crawford, who was very near my office in the Pentagon and was sort of a mentor. He was supportive. And then I think I got the job offer in, final job offer in March or April. And I was out in Bahrain by mid-June, 2014.
0: So you had this pretty much lined up before you left uniform then.
1: Oh, I absolutely did. Yeah. So when I had my retirement ceremony in May, I knew that I was heading out the next month to Bahrain. So there was a couple of weeks that I had off. But when I went out to Bahrain, I was not retired from active duty yet. I had a month of overlap pay. What are some of the things that you learned
0: through the process that you wish you would have known at the time?
1: I don't know that there's anything that's significant that that I felt like I didn't know. Having what we just talked about, I thought having that information on getting the leave accrual was important because if you miss that window, you can't go back and get it. And it does make a difference on how much leave you get. And then I think getting at the right pay grade and step was important. I felt like I had adequate information on that. For sure, when I look back at my notes and emails, you know, I was really reaching out to people on the interview process. So I reached out. I saw that I'd sent an email to Ed Hanel, who was the counsel at Pack Fleet at the time. And Ed had been sort of a mentor and had helped introduce me to different OGC counsel over the years that I was there. And I reached out to him and say, hey, Ed, here's the PD. What do you think some of the things that I need to be thinking about, and particularly in an overseas position? I sent that out to several people to get their responses. So I think that was important, that interview process of trying to focus on what questions you think you're going to be asked and what skill sets you need to be able to talk about. And so as you identify, how you can sort of explain away maybe some gaps that you have in what they're looking for. But that was real important, I think, developing. And even when I was coming from Japan back to CONUS this time, Uh, When I would apply for a job, I usually spent about 20 to 30 hours preparing for the interview. And that included, you know, obviously studying the organization and knowing who their leadership was and then trying to research some of the issues I know that they dealt with. And I might ask people in that organization, what's the top issues you're dealing with? And then I would do some of my own research into that area, into that law area, so that I could talk about it in the interview process. So like I say, usually about 20 to 30 hours of prep time for the one-hour interview. Is there any particular advice that you would offer people
0: coming out? This has been very informative, but if you had to give them one or two nuggets of advice, what would it be?
1: Well, when I look back at the jobs I've been hired in, as you indicated, hiring authorities, I knew all of the hiring authorities. So when I was hired in Bahrain, I knew them. In Japan, Ed Hanno was the one. So I had worked with Ed before. He was familiar with my body of work. And same when I came back to MSC. When you talk about networking, it really is important to, and you're not, as your prior people have said... It's not like you're developing friendships and relationships in the sense of, hey, what can I get out of it? How is this going to help me get a job? No, just sort of a genuine interest and trying to explore and understand other jobs in the Navy and other commands and what they do. That will all come back to benefit you. So the work you're doing right now, Tom, there's no question it's going to come back and help you as you transition. And that's true to other senior officers. You know, So get out, do as much as you can, I think. Talk to people. Just have that general curiosity in what they do, volunteer for some stuff, do the hard work. So I don't think that there's any one or two pieces of nugget advice that I have, but just know that, you know, getting out and talking with people and getting your name around really can make a difference. And you won't know which one of those conversations will in order to your benefit. It's funny because when I I listened to you with Mike Lucan, you know, who knew that that conversation, you know, would lead him to Walmart. But there it was, you know.
0: Mike's is an incredible story. And I told him and I think you heard it. When I came up with the idea of the podcast, he was the guy I was building it on because it's just such a unique story of someone going from military to my gosh, corporate like that.
1: Right. Yeah. What a great journey for him. You know, for me, the part I love about OGC is, you know, when I talk, when people ask me what I do, I say, hey, I've been in the Navy for 33 years. You know, I consider I'm in the Navy, right? I mean, I've done 25 in uniform and eight in a suit and tie, as I call it. But, you know, it's been sort of with one organization. And I love that. And, you know, I love OGC, just like I love the JAG Corps. They're very complimentary. There's great leadership in both. You know, I see myself finishing up this gig, hopefully, maybe with 40 years. For me, it'd be neat to walk out the door saying, hey, I've done 40 years in the Navy. There's a certain beauty to that for me personally. Seems like you're still having a lot of fun. Well, I think I am, yeah. And, you know, and I get to stay in contact with JAGs. I still get the JAG news and that kind of stuff. <laughs> and, you know, talk to the third fleet JAG here and to the so because at times our areas overlap. And so we stay in contact, have lunch. I'm back at MSC headquarters, Trevor Rush and Max Jenkins, former JAG, and, and then my leadership there. It's a, it's a great team. My client here, what in the OGC we call clients, is a great naval officer and appreciates the advice and counsel that I'm able to give him. So it's a good day, a good gig. I feel very blessed and thankful, Tom. Well, Stu, that's
0: that's all I've got. If you have anything else, you can fire for effect. I got to tell you that every time I talk to somebody even though a lot of the messages are the same. I walk away with a nugget. I think Aaron Stone was truly about her taking a look at what she really enjoyed about her Navy career and finding out that it was helping people. Steve Barney was his passion for service. Mike Lucan uh, making that jump. Todd Huntley, how an adjunct teaching job resulted in him being at Georgetown. One of the things that you drove home is the amount of preparation. It's not something you think you're done when you put in a resume. If you get that invite, you've got to be ready to talk. You've got to be ready to talk the issues and understand and make them understand that you care about the institution or the organization that you're walking into.
1: No, you're right. That's a great summary of your former interviewees as well. And th- those are great nuggets. Yeah, I think you know the only thing I would add is that you know I'm just very thankful for all the leadership that I've been blessed with over the years of my career, both in uniform and in OGC. This is just, as I thought about, you know, reflecting on this over the last couple of days, I realized how lucky I've been to serve with a lot of great men and women over the years. So I'm here because of some of the things that I've done, obviously, but really it's because of the great leadership that began very early in my career with a guy named Captain Dave Larson, you know, all the way through guys like Mark Lawton and Jim Crawford and into OGC, Gary Ressing and people like that, that have really given me a lot of an Ed Hanel sage counsel and advice over the years. So, so I wish you the best, Tom, and our listeners the best and anyone is certainly feel free to reach out to me.
0: Thanks, Stu. This was really, really helpful. Thank you for listening. If you like this podcast, be sure to subscribe and tell your friends. After the JAG Corps is a TJW 50 Associates LLC production.